Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the fourth in our series, Data Bytes, Getting Things Done with Data in Government. I'm Gavin Freegard, Programme Director here at the Institute for Government, and it's wonderful to see so many of you here for our fourth event. Uh, tonight is sponsored by the Office for Statistics Regulation. Uh, hands up if you've been to a Data Bytes event before. Welcome back. That's always a really encouraging sign that we're doing something right. Uh, hands up if it's your first Data Bytes event. Well, welcome, and uh, look forward to seeing you again in September. Um, as those of you who've been before will know, um, I'll talk through the format and how it's all going to work shortly. I'll show off some Institute for Government charts as well. Um, but before we get started, uh, a few bits of housekeeping. We are on the record this evening, and we are being live-streamed. So hello if you're watching us from elsewhere. We will be tweeting avidly. Uh, the hashtag is IFGDataBytes, and you can also follow IFGEvents. And for those of you inside the room, you can get onto our Wi-Fi. Details are network IFG guest, username IFG, and password visitor. Now, it's wonderful to see you all tonight because I know how difficult it must have been to tear yourselves away from the leadership contest that is gripping the nation, the one that could well decide who our next prime minister is. Oh, sorry, not that one. <laughs> That's the correct slide. Uh, yes, of course, we are underway, and we have already whittled 13 candidates for the Conservative Party leadership, uh, down to just two. Lots of voting from the MPs so far, but we are now firmly um, into the membership part. Lots of hustings around the country, as you can see on this timeline behind me. And we will get to a new Prime Minister, probably, on the 24th of July. Um, so that obviously provides us quite a good opportunity to look back on Theresa May's premiership in a series of six charts. Now, such is my dedication to the cause that in homage to her 2017 conference speech, I've lost my voice, and we've lost a few letters <laughs> as well. Um, let's start with the obvious one. This is the sort of tenure of all prime ministers going back to Robert Walpole, um, and we just picked out the detail there. I think Theresa May is 33rd on the all-time list of 54 prime ministers. She will have served 1,106 days as PM by the time she steps down. It's about two and a half weeks short of Jim Callaghan. Um, but that might have been quite a short tenure, but it's obviously been an incredibly eventful one. Cast your minds back to 2015, when David Cameron, remember him, was Prime Minister. Um, this was a general election held in the aftermath of a divisive national referendum, and it delivered us a result that we weren't quite expecting, a Conservative majority those blue blocks just getting them over the working majority line. Fast forward to 2017, Theresa May calls an election in the aftermath of a divisive national referendum. It gives us a result that nobody was quite expecting. Uh, but this time, you can see, as you know, um, the Tories were only able to govern with the support of the Democratic Unionist Party. Um, that's what it now looks like. Um, all hell has sort of broken loose in Parliament with the Brexit divide and various other things dividing the parties. The Tories are down. It's always a bad sign when you have to timestamp your charts as to what things look like. Um, but we've also got a record number of independent uh, members at the moment. There are, there's Change UK, the artist formerly known as the Independent Group, and also people who've even become independent from the Independent Group or Change UK. Um, but of course, the minority situation has made it much more difficult to get things through Parliament and made very, sort of, lots of political events uh, more interesting. Now, of course, you probably know the next chart that I'm going to show because it's another sign of the political disruption that we've seen. It's the famous resignations chart, uh, showing you all of the non-reshuffle resignations of all Prime Ministers back to 1979. See, Blair and Thatcher got to about 25, 30 in 10 years, whereas Theresa May, of course, 
has seen 35 resignations uh, in just three. And it's not just the number that's unprecedented, it's also the reasons for those resignations. Um, the, this is the same data, shown in a slightly different way. The big circles are cabinet resignations, the smaller circles are junior ministerial resignations. Uh, you can see we've had a couple of, we've had one sacking under May, which is actually quite a rare event. The only other one since 79 was Keith Speed, who refused to resign under Thatcher. But you're now going to see all of the pink resignations. Those are due to disagreements over policy and politics. We've had 23 of them under Theresa May, unprecedented, and 21 of those have been due to Brexit. So there's been a lot of political uh, stories going on over the last few years, but the civil service has also changed quite a lot in that time. Uh, there were about 470,000 civil servants at the time of the 2010 spending review. Uh, the civil service reform plan expected that would come down to about 380,000. Never quite got there, but it did continue to fall. And then we get to this line in June 2016. I wonder what possibly could have happened at that point. Um, and this is my best Bruce Forsyth impression. Since, since June 2016, do we think the number of civil servants is higher or lower? Higher. higher yes, of course it is. Uh, we're back up to 415,000, so that's quite a lot. And the final chart, um, which may come in handy over the next few weeks, um, Theresa May in creating DEXU up there, uh, Bayes and DIT. Um, we hadn't seen many changes to government departments um, under David Cameron or since about 2009. Um, obviously, we have seen new departments created under Theresa May. Lots of rumours about whether the next Prime Minister might choose to create some more. And, of course, the next Prime Minister will inherit the same political situation that you've just seen. They will inherit a growing civil service and they may be tempted to look at machinery of government changes. Brilliant uh, blog post on our website from my colleague Tim about why that might not be such a good idea, but who knows, maybe in September we'll have some new departments up here presenting uh, to you. Um, so, returning to tonight, why data bytes? Well, we want to bring together different data communities across government. We want to show leaders in government what better data could actually achieve, and we want to put best practice and interesting projects on the record. So, how does this event work? Well, it's a series of quick-fire presentations, uh, quite different to a lot of the events that we do here. Uh, you will see four presentations on interesting data projects. Each speaker will have eight minutes to present. Yes, that's eight minutes. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a data byte. Uh, and you will see the terrifyingly low already uh, timer on stage, which will indicate how much time each speaker has got left. Once the speaker has spoken, that will be followed by eight minutes. Eight minutes of questions from you, the audience, so please do keep your questions short. I will start the timer as soon as the first question is asked. And then we move on to the next speaker. So a speaker will speak for eight minutes, take questions for eight minutes, then we move on to the next presentation. Um, we've had three wonderful events already um, so far. Um, this is our first one. I'm going to rush through this because of the time. Uh, that was the second. You can follow the links um, on our website as well to find videos and questions and answers with all of the previous speakers. But let's turn to tonight's lineup. Uh, first, from our sponsor for the evening, the Office for Statistics Regulation, we'll have Catherine Bromley uh, talking about statistics producers and the public good. Um, I couldn't help but notice her tweet uh, earlier this week saying that there might be some cricket statistics that make their way into tonight's presentation. Uh, let's see if she bails on that shortly. <laughs> Always pushing the boundary of bad jokes. Uh, she'll be followed by Dr. Jane Kennedy from Newham talking about their data warehouse or how you can join up data to help citizens across a number of different public services. We'll then hear from Ganesh Senthi from the Government Digital Service talking about how machine learning can help users find content. And then we'll have Michael Bertwistle from the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation talking about the AI barometer. 
Uh, the next event will be on the 4th of September, um, so please do join us then. If you want to pitch a presentation, get in touch with me. If you're interested in supporting the series, email david.trepepi-lewis, the longest uh, email address in the Institute, at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. And without further ado, and just about on time, I will hand you over to our first speaker, Catherine Bromley. Thank you. Um, let me just take it, the mic's working. Yes, and so is the clicker. Okay, so I've managed to change my title. I'm now talking, same topic, different title. Um, Statistics in the Age of Abundance. Um, let me just first check, who's heard of the Office for Stats Regulation or the concept of stats? Okay. Um, for the uninitiated, and I'm glad there's a lot of you here, um, we are the independent regulators, regulators of UK statistics um, produced by government, um, arm's length bodies and the NHS. Um, although we're part of the UK Statistics Authority, we're effectively their regulatory wing, there's a very strict um, separation between us and the Office for National Statistics, so, um, we, and we certainly don't produce statistics, um, it's an important um, point to make. Um, and the underpinning of the work we do is this Code of Practice for Statistics, um, first published in 2009 and the second edition came out in February 2018. Um, and as you can see from our uh, lovely banner, that is structured around three pillars, trustworthiness, quality and value. And it, under those pillars, it sets out the behaviours that we expect of statistics producers um, when they're producing their statistics. And I'm going to come back to those um, three pillars uh, throughout the talk. Um, if you haven't heard of us before, you might recognise some of our greatest hits. Um, we are, if you can see from these headlines, it looks like I spend my life uh, rebuking people, wrapping ministers on the knuckles, etc., etc. Um, and while the protection of statistics in public debate is a very important and very public part of the, uh, the work we do, um, this actually slightly skews the impression of what it is we do and the, kind of the ambitions we have for statistics. So we've recently set out in our new vision statement um, our broader ambitions for the role of statistics to support public good um, and our aspiration for seeing people to have confidence in the statistics the government produces. Um, so the vision statement is available, um, I think there's copies of it out there. Um, it's draft, we're looking for feedback over the summer, particularly if you're, um, if you're not familiar with our work, it'd be really helpful to broaden those conversations outside of the statistics bubble. Um, so what I'm going to just talk about, what do I mean by abundant, the world of abundant data and what it means for us as regulators? So we've clearly moved on from a world in which when once data was so scarce and so um, highly valued that the 1790 American census results were printed onto ceramics in Liverpool and exported to the US for sale. Now we're in the world of data abundance. You probably know what's coming here. So... My current obsession is the Cricket World Cup. Um, I have an app on my phone, it has a statistics section. I control it for statistics, here's the most runs, here's the most centuries, here's the most sixes. Cricket fans in the audience will appreciate that it took some effort to find some statistics which were not headed all by Australians. Um, I, can, I also can watch in real time the runs um, unfolding as the matches progress. Um, and again, for anyone's interested, this is where it got very exciting at Durham on Monday. Um, also, Rihanna was watching at that point, um, and that added to the excitement. Uh, she's a famous pop star. Um, <laughs> the, my lord. The point of all this is we're living in a world where data is so abundant, and examples like this, clearly they're valuable, they're accessible, 
um, they're producing you know, useful information to me, I trust the source. These are all the kinds of principles that we want official statistics production um, to uphold. And it raises the expectations of the public. Obviously, we also have concerns about the fact that there is a proliferation of junk data, fake data, um, and these are all you know, the settings which make our, our work very different to say what it was 10 years ago, and probably even five years ago. So what does it mean for us as regulators? Um, it means more challenge from us to the producers to do more with data, um, more challenge from us to make the data available to users so that they can generate their own insights. Um, it means more conversations like this, trying to reach out to audiences who aren't necessarily in the, the traditional statistics world and try to make those connections in the data community. But it also means challenging the system to do better um, and to identify the areas where there are problems that meaning statistic producers can't get the value out of the data that they produce. Um, so this is a piece of work that um, I led last year. This was our joining up data for better statistics, an investigation of how well the stats system can share and join up data um, to produce insights. And we mapped out six outcomes that we wanted to see achieved in order to create a safe and effective data linkage system. And there's a lot of very similar um, messages in this to the um, NAO report the last couple of weeks around the need for you know, better data standardization of data quality standards, um, leadership and coordination across government, a lot of the, more, you know, the technical solutions to a lot of the problems that people face. But for us at the core of this was the importance of demonstrating trust trustworthiness and for the government to be seen as a safe custodian of people's data. Without that, the kind of the necessary things on the kind of technical side would not be sufficient to deliver the system. So trustworthiness at its core. So following on from that work, we developed our new um, data governance guidance around, um, sorry, building confidence in the handling and use of data. So this moved us on from code version one, as I said in 2009, that was very much around the safeguarding of data around ethics. This is us saying it's, you need to do more than demonstrate that you're safeguarding the data. You need to explain how you're doing it and be transparent about those processes. Um, and you also need to commit to, to fulfilling the potential of that data. And then for this, we want to see greater clarity. It's no longer sustainable for there to be different conversations and different information being put out around data about how it's safeguarded by all the different departments. So the kind of coherence we want to see in statistics, we also want to see a coherence in the information about safeguarding. We want to see greater public advocacy for the role of data. Um, all too often, it's an important part of the focus, and a lot of people in this room probably, um, it's their bread and butter. But the focus on data as a, as a utility, a resource for governments to help them make decisions and help them run services. Um, there needs to be a much stronger focus on the value of data to the public in their lives, about the insights it brings about the world we live in and the kind of decisions they make themselves. And as part of that greater advocacy, we want to see greater engagement. And again, it's not about, um, we no longer can stay in a world where the conversations around data just simply aren't happening um, and the public needs to be brought into those conversations. But we're also conscious that there's a much wider environment that has an impact on statistics production. So at the moment, we, could have, we almost live in a quite kind of rarefied situation. We have our own chapter in the Digital Economy Act. There are special provisions in the Data Protection Act. Um, and statistics, in a sense, we, the world can sometimes see, see ourselves as separate from the rest of what's going on with data. But for the most, majority of the public, data is data these distinctions aren't meaningful and when there are concerns about privacy in this context was a tweet I saw at the weekend um, discussing facial um, recognition software 
and this is someone from Ireland joining together the kind of concerns they have as a privacy cons campaign who's also a lawyer um, and drawing out um, concerns about uh, camera data but also about the cross age they're mentioning in this a cross agency database of citizen data now so at the time where one part of the government is trying to advocate for bringing together the data more so that we can you know, generate insights about the citizens we need to be cognizant of the fact that there are other uses of data going on that raise concerns for people now, so for us it all comes back to trustworthiness and the and quality and value when data are abundant the government has an additional duty to demonstrate its trustworthiness as the custodian and the user of, of public data it has a far more need to drive up the quality of the data it has so it stands aside from the junk and the fake data out there and it has a huge um, duty to ensure that the statistics it's delivering are timely, they're relevant, and they're insightful. Thank you very much. So, we will now take some questions. Um, please do wait for the microphone to arrive before you ask your question. Um, and as I said, I will start the timer as soon as the first question is uh, started to be asked. So, give us your name, where you're from. Remember, we are on the record and being live-streamed. Um, who would like to ask a question? I'll try to take them in groups of two or three. So, we've got a question down the front, and we've got a question at the back. Hi, I'm Simon Burrell, Senior Associate of Involve. Um, given all the focus on kind of data security, how do you get policymakers and the users and, and, uh, and those who are kind of creating statistics to actually focus on that question of engaging the public on value as well? See, it, I find it very hard to kind of get that second bit of the equation um, into the policy uh, landscape. Thank you. Chris Ellis from the GLA. Uh, if you could have one extra power as a body, what would it be? <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay, so yes, you're right that those conversations um, about value are sometimes difficult to bring into those conversations around sort of security. Um, I think where we have seen good examples, um, there's an example in Scotland where um, there's data linkage being used to sort of help make decisions about the positioning of defibrillators in the community. Um, linkage that's been used to help improve the dental health of children who are looked after by the state. So there's real tangible benefits there um, to the, and changes to people's lives that we can all, all see. So I think those are the kind of examples that's honing in on um, situations where people's lives have demonstrably been improved because these things have happened. Um, and I think it's kind of important to say it's not we're saying that these conversations should be divorced from the conversations about security. It's about saying that it's they're part and parcel of the same some wider conversation because um, at the end of the day however good the benefits are you can demonstrate if you can't also demonstrate why you should you can be trusted to deliver those um, then you've not won the argument um, but I think you're right that there is a, still a challenge to give producers um, and data users and government more confidence to have those conversations um, and it's a bit of a chicken leg thing that because the data sharing isn't necessarily happening those examples aren't coming through so it's um, you know, it's a it's a to be challenged. Uh, and more powers. Hmm. Um, that's a, I don't know. Um, can I come back to that as I think through it? Um, yeah, okay. Excellent. Uh, while Catherine thinks about that, um, any more questions? Um, we've got three down here. Thank you. 
Um, Pauline Moore, I'm a civil servant. Um, I just wondered with um, the Transparency Agenda and the Freedom of Information Act, whether you think those things help or um, deter the, the public confidence and statistics that are out there. Hello, Miranda Sharp from Ordnance Survey. I'd just like to know the um, gaffe that you're most pleased about writing. <laughs> or the, sorry, the mistake that you're most pleased about exposing. Sam Smith, Meg Confidential. Um, government is currently looking at what statistics you should publish from the Settled Status Registration Scheme for EU citizens in the UK. Uh, you can guess the level of confidence in what the Home Office are planning. Um, while I'm sure you can't comment on how they're screwing it up, would the quality of those statistics be within your remit prior to publication? Thank you. OK, take it backwards. So, um, no, I can't comment directly on um, Home Office things. Yes, but the quality of those statistics um, would be something of interest to us. Um, so that could either happen in two ways, with someone raising concerns before they're produced, and we would go and have a conversation with the head of profession there, or once they are produced, um, that's something that, um, you know, it's as a... It's a fundamental part of the code, so quality matters. Um, my favourite gaffe, um, it's definitely a question for over the wine later, but um, <laughs> in terms of my favourite intervention and what it's delivered, it's probably the Home Office spending on police um, because we had um, a number of iterations of that coming back to us. So this was about um, statements about police budgets. Um, police budgets are horrendously complicated. It's very easy to to mislead inadvertently and deliberately. Um, so, and there were, every time a piece budget was announced, um, there were complaints about the way those figures were being presented. Um, and our message was, you need to bring this together into a statistics um, publication, make this something that's actually accessible. Um, and on the final round of that, um, which was the headlines I was showing, um, the Home Office accepted that uh, recommendation and we haven't had any um, kind of correspondence on that since. And we're trying to, um, this is an example of us trying to sort of move into the, the sort of wider data used as evidence, um, rather than saying there's a specific code around statistics, but you know, as soon as it's got a pound sign in front of it, it's not our business. We're interested in data as, ev as evidence, and if it's um, playing the role of statistics in debate, uh, we, will, we will intervene and comment. Um, and FOI and transparency and confidence. Um, I mean, I think it all depends, often it will depend on how those FOIs and those transparencies are being <coughs> treated. So if there is a sense that um, governments aren't playing by the rules with the FOI, um, and I know, you know there are bits of um, debates around that, I think that doesn't help confidence. Um, so I think having, it, you know, the all, it all connects, so you need to be able to demonstrate that you're um, being trustworthy in your approach to that, that side of things in the same way that you're demonstrating your trustworthiness with the production of statistics. So I think it's a, it's a good <coughs> question. Um, I still haven't thought of what new powers I would like, um, but I will continue thinking. There's another two minutes and 20 seconds for you to think about it. Um, we've got time for another round of questions. We've got one here. Anybody else want to get a final question in? OK. I'm Hartley Miller, Management Partners. Uh, it's been a, a, a long-standing ambition that information gathered by government departments should be made better use of. Um, but very often what's gathered is actually not in a form that it can easily be deployed with, uh, even with the efforts of publishers. 
um, in terms of what you regard as being value, um, do you have a role in actually pointing out to departments how they could better present things so that the, the added value could be added? Yeah. Well, we certainly have a role um, through, so through the assessment process that we go through for something that's wanting the status of a national statistics, um, which is a subset of official statistics that we've been through a process of assessing. Um, if the presentation of the data is found to be wanting, that would be an area where it would be um, a requirement to make improvements in order to get the status of national state, uh, statistics. Um, for ones who've already got that status, we have um, a process called compliance checks. Um, I was involved in some compliance checks um, at the end of last year that focused very much on the presentation of data, and it was very um, it was two sides, both wanting better visual presentation, but also wanting better insights around the statistics. So it's not just you know collect, count, and print, but wanting to see a narrative and a story, and that's very much uh, a strong focus of our work. Um, but there's also across the government statistical service a good practice team who do the kind of nuts and bolts of going and training and working with teams um, to help them develop their visualisations. Um, and there's a, there's, a, there's a big community and a lot of effort there, but you're right that you know, there's, there's always more room for improvement. And I think the thing I wanted to flag in the talk is that one of the other ways I think in which our work has changed very much in the last few years is the, the judgments we make aren't set in stone. There's an expectation that once you're granted national statistics status that you continue to improve. And we're now asking people to make statements, well, the government departments to make statements about how you've improved your statistics since they were last granted their status. Um, it's, you know, if they, if, and if we we're going to do a compliance check, and if they look basically the same as they did five years ago, um, that will be raised. Um, and if I had a power, maybe mandatory training in statistics for some <laughs> repeat offenders. Thanks. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Catherine. And next up, we have Dr. Jane Kennedy from the London Borough of Newham. Thank you. Um, thanks for inviting me, Gavin. Um, I'm going to talk to you about the Data Warehouse um, BI programme we've got in Newham, which is fairly unique, I think, in, it's fair to say, in local government. Um, but if I first say, what's this about? We had, um, before we set up the Data Warehouse, 30 uh, different systems in the borough that didn't integrate, um, didn't speak to each other, and it was very hard to make either operational or strategic decisions uh, relating to the data we held. We've created, um, over the course of some time, a single view of people, um, all the events about um, individuals um, that operate, that link into the council information, and we've got a single view of property, a single view of uh, children within school, and we're creating a single view of our business sector. And that's not only operationally effective, but we're, we're, we employ a range of um, data science techniques, machine learning, predictive analytics, I'll come on to talk about. We've achieved quite a, um, a number of operational savings as a result of our um, operational linkage of our data. But we've also got postdoctor post data scientists in my team who operate, as I say, statistics and machine learning. That isn't particularly helpful for a frontline officer. So what we've done is taken that, used um, a surface redesign process to say what, what is the as-is, what is the to-be, and then work together with the service to drive out efficiency in the process 
and to develop applications such as the one on the screen to embed those applications into the surface systems so that frontline officers can make better informed decisions. This, this example it was actually about our homelessness prevention service, actually enabled people to say whether we owed a duty or not um, to people coming in through our homeless service and to provide more targeted prevention information to those people um, that came forward earlier. In terms of benefits we've seen, we've included a, a significant number of benefits, both in terms of the immediate benefits, so that working on data quality within the organisation was actually fundamental to uh, linking the data and making sure that the data was actually going to be usable and, and efficient and effective. Um, so we've identified um, significant data errors as a result of doing that. We've detected fraud, um, particularly in single-person discount. I'll come back on to talk about that. Also, housing, um, subletting, um, parking, um, blue badge um, fraud. We've made better operational decisions because we now understand, so the surface, um, as an example, a housing surface can now look at data regarding the tenant to identify whether they are not paying their rent or um, because they um, are, have financial decision problems. They're not paying their rent because they have mental health problems, for example. So they can really can get in and support um, the tenant in a way that we couldn't do operationally otherwise. We've also used it for better strategic decision making. So, for example, um, we've restructured our looked after children service um, triage as a result of doing this and saved half a million pounds in the process. And we've achieved resource efficiencies. But we're now we're looking at cost avoidance. So we're looking at transformational um, business savings. We're looking at income generation, particularly council tax and, and business rates. And we're helping the services themselves to, make, um, to meet their statutory obligations uh, more effectively and efficiently, particularly, as I say, around children's services, but increasingly shifting that approach into looking at adults as well. And we've increased outcomes for residents in the process. Analytical views, I wanted to give you um, a few brief examples. They're not the only examples, but I wanted to talk about some of them. So in single-person discount fraud, for example, in the first run of the model, we resulted in identifying 1,300 cases of fraudulent use of single-person discount. That's resulted in our, our locking down those accounts and people now paying um, increasing uh, rates of council tax. We've also identified an, an additional 1,300 as a result of doing that again this year. Um, so we continue to operate that process. We've identified 158 homes that were um, empty, um, were, which were deemed to be empty but were not. Um, so we've identified um, 158 um, uh, areas to identify new homes bonus. And we've identified, and we're starting very early days, but we're starting to look at business rates and we've identified 19 significant businesses, one of which was Tesco, um, working in the area that were not paying business rates. So we've taken it forward now to, to start thinking about how we operationalise that more effectively and make sure people actually are paying um, the rates and contributing to income within the borough. We've also identified freedom pass fraud, uh, where people have either died and their relatives are continuing to use their freedom passes, um, but that 
generally leads to um, enforcement issues and other areas like enforcement parking, antisocial behaviours, and that is leading to us to think about who those people are and why. I think for me, though, the most important and most interesting examples are around what we're doing on artificial intelligence and embedding that into machine learning moving forward. So as a result, we've got um, a borough-wide PRS licensing scheme. When we started that scheme, we had um, a significant problem in identifying um, licensed properties. We've reduced that from 50% error rate to 3% error rate. We've identified an, an additional annual increase in council tax from that scheme of 700k, and we've identified 152 properties that were being sublet, which are now back in the system, while reducing staff costs by 150k. And we've also identified over 3,500 properties, um, or reduced, sorry, um, temporary accommodation by 3,500 properties, again, a significant cost for the council. Um, so that's what we're doing currently. What we'd like to do actually is to do more business weight because some of you are civil servants, I'd make a plea to say we'd actually like civil service data um, in the data warehouse that applies to, to new residents as well. It would be fantastic to get more partner level data from a national, national team. We have some police data uh, and the ambition is to work with um, East London Discovery to actually linking public health data as well. Um, so that's what we're doing. Um, we think we're quite unusual, and I'm happy to take questions. Fantastic. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, Jane was actually our first speaker from uh, local government, so uh, thank you very much for that. Okay. Uh, so we've got a question here. Have we got any other questions for the first round? We've got another one here and another one there as well, so that's three to get us started. Hi, I'm Julie Pierce from the Food Standards Agency. Um, and so my question um, is whether or not you've been using um, food information related to business um, that are operating in the food sector. And if I can have a second question, if not, um, whether you'd like to and work, work with us to explore that use case. Yeah. Um, we'll just take the other two okay. questions as well quickly. Uh, yeah, Chris Allen from, from ACAS. Um, yeah, I would just it'd be interesting to know to, to what extent the residents are aware of this. Is this a visible thing? Mm -hmm. and, on, and if it is, to what extent you can uh, demonstrate that it's also for their good? I presume it's not just for catching people out. So, Thank you. And the third question is just back there. Hi, uh, Helen Graham, also a food standards agency, but a non-food related question. Um, <laughs> you've mentioned a number of interesting uh, data products that you've built. Um, to what extent have these been developed in the open? Do you have a GitHub um, repo that you, you put things on? How, how, does, how does it work? Thanks. Okay, so I'll take the first one first because that's the easiest. Um, no, we haven't got any food information in there at the moment, apart from trading standards information. And yes, we'd um, love to work with you around um, that. Thank you. Um, second question. Um, we Yes, we do have a data processing um, information on our website. So um, residents have to click now to agree and, and consent um, to us holding that information and to using that information in that way. We probably don't do enough of that. Um, linking into um, Simon's earlier question actually around um, governance and resident participation 
um, we need to be doing more um, and we need to be making it clearer to residents what's in it for them. Um, I think that's increasingly difficult to do, but it's certainly something the mayor and members are really inc increasingly asking us and challenging us to do, particularly around the use of open, open data and, and, and self-reporting by, by residents. Um, very much, actually, in, in ADAS's world, we're currently doing a piece of work looking at um, adult um, care packages, um, and that's really about the outcomes and, and, and trying to enable residents to stay in their own homes for longer and get supported earlier stage, so it's about prevention. Um, and the looked after children one was also about how can we better support um, children earlier and work with their parents earlier in the process to stop them from becoming um, child protection cases in, in the future. So, yeah, a lot of them are uh, now um, shifting. Now we've done the easy, quick win, fraudulent stuff. We're now shifting into the outcome-related work. Um, sorry, remind me. Oh, um, no, um, but you know that that is something we could we, we could be looking at. We do share, so other councils that are working on these kinds of projects. Are, can we share information um, and share 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 coding? It's um, quite so, but but it's not on any particular external platform at the moment. Great, thank you. Uh, next set of questions. Uh, so we've got two down here and one there as well. in what must be a really rich plethora of opportunity how do you decide where to focus your effort <laughs> yeah Hartley Miller again um, it, it's a perennial problem to get different departments in a departmentalized organization to um, observe the same quality of data collection yes. um, have you found some magic way of actually doing that and reconciling I wish I had uh, Luke Stamber civil servant um, what challenges have you found when trying to match identities across multiple data sets and how did you overcome them? Um, so focusing on effort, um, the initial focus on our programme was around cost saving. Um, it was very much linked to our transformation um, programme and it was about the big ticket items, um, but also some of the small things like fraudulent stuff where we can identify and run it on a either quarterly or monthly basis to actually say, can we start driving out some cost? The bigger issues now are coming out through um, the surface transformation, actually. So directors coming to us to say, actually, we want to reduce the numbers of older people getting intensive care packages because actually it's better for them um, to not need them. So can you work with us to identify who those people might be in the future and then how we can actually use the data to um, prevent, to do some early prevention um, work. Um, so that's one of the things. Um, data quality is a massive issue for us. Um, we've had to do a lot of data quality training. Um, we've, we've introduced corporate um, mandatory training for on, on, on data quality, fairly low level, but I think it's, we need to stop. Um, there wasn't a culture of data quality within the organisation, if I'm being really honest. Um, it's better in some services than others, um, but we also need to create um, data quality standards. So I think anything uh, we can do um, to improve our standards um, and to encourage frontline users to know how important it is to implement data is, is a real challenge for us. Uh, one of the other challenges actually was about data governance um, and our, our single view of people 
Um, and we had a lot of conversation with senior leaders and, and, and um, also our members to try and to, to come up with a, a, a ladder of, of governance to lock down um, protected data to those people who actually needed it. Um, so that was one of the challenges. One of the other challenges, obviously, was about data quality. In Neoworm, we've got 220 spoken languages, so you can imagine the complexity of name matching. We had um, a commercial um, product that didn't work for us, so, um, so we had some developers in who built um, our uh, data matching software um, using probabilistic um, matching um, with 22 different rules. Um, I haven't got time to go into, um, thankfully, it's a bit technical. Um, but that's actually significantly improved our, our gold matching records, but it still actually spends an awful lot of time saying, is this the same person? Um, so, but we have got people, we have got someone in the team who, who does that on a, on a very regular basis. Um, but that's, we're implementing that in a machine learning model, so actually improving the data matching system as, as, it's, as it's used. Great, I think we've got time for literally one more question. If anybody has a burning desire to ask one, otherwise I'll subject you to one. Um, there's been a lot of talk recently about the new sort of London Office of Technology and Innovation and sort of London boroughs working together. I wonder if, if you're working with any boroughs on any particular projects at the moment and how that kind of works. Um, when we're not. We, we talk to um, Lottie uh, quite often, um, to the GLA. Um, at the moment, the projects they're looking at, we've already done. Um, and the models that they built, we've already got. Um, so there is an added benefit of doing that at the moment. We have bought into it um, and because we do see the value of, of working together, particularly around actually um, children, um, because a lot of children are transient within especially East London. Um, so we don't have all the information relating to the child before they come into the borough. Um, so there's definitely um, a real good uh, opportunity to work across London, but we just haven't followed it up quite yet. Great. Well, Jane, thank you very much indeed. And our next speaker is from the Government Digital Service. Our first GDS speaker, it's Ganesh oh. Senthi. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> um, that's oh, is this one? Yeah. Cool. Okay. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, this is my first live talk, so bear with me. Um, I'm going to talk about how we're using, uh, how we use machine learning to help users find content. Um, the too long, didn't read version of this is that we use machine learning to add related links for 98% of content on GovUK that didn't have one previously. Uh, essentially, we built a recommendation engine for content. Uh, this is all brand new to everyone in the team. So there's lots of room for improvement if you spot it, and we would like to hear all your feedback, of course. Um, ah, that's it. So I'm going to go through it and we'll talk about what's the problem, how we evaluated the machine learning algorithms, how we productionized it, quality control, rollback options, and next steps. So what was the problem we were trying to solve? Um, on GovUK, we have a number of different navigational aids to help users find the content they need. Uh, one of these navigational aids is related links. As you can see, it's just uh, links that allow users to, that we provide users to help them with their onward journey. But we also have other sort of navigational aids such as the search bar, the header, the breadcrumb, and the footer. Uh, 
so let's delve into some statistics. Uh, as I mentioned, 98% of all our content has no related links. Uh, that's over about 400 pieces of content we have on GovUK. Um, and this mainly relates to the long, what we call the long tail of content. So this is kind of the 30% of content that GovUK has that doesn't get regular high traffic. Uh, around 2% of content on GovUK has related links. Um, these are the highest traffic pages we have, and it represents over about 70% of all visits to GovUK. They're very ser service orientated, so getting your driving license, uh, getting a divorce, applying for a visa, um, those sort of things that help users carry on with their daily lives. Uh, so why does this matter? So from observation and analytics, we know that good related links help shorten journeys. It means users can get to the content they need faster. Um, also, just generally, dead ends are not very helpful for users. We should always be trying to help a user get to what they want, uh, especially with a content estate that's nearly you know, over 450,000 bits of content. The chances of them landing on something that is not quite what they want is uh, fairly high. Um, so with this in mind, we decided to investigate uh, machine learning. Um, so I'm going to talk about how we evaluated the machine learning algorithms. I won't go into too much detail about each algorithm, but I'm more than happy to talk about it afterwards. Uh, over the course of eight weeks, we ran four A-B experiments, which tested three different algorithms. Uh, I say four because the first one we did was an, known as an AA test, so we can test whether there was any sort of false positives in what we were seeing in traffic, and then we based everything on that. Um, our metrics for success were an increase in clicks on related links and a decrease in clicks on navigational elements. Um, we say a decrease in clicks because uh, navigational elements are signs that a user may be lost or trying to uh, iterate their journey, orientate themselves. Uh, A-B test consisted of two parts, comparing the algorithm uh, the links generated from the algorithm with the 2% that are human curated and the effect of adding related links to pages without any. Uh, we then measured how users interact with these links um, and the site to determine which uh, algorithms were the most relevant for users. Uh, the three, for those interested, we tested three uh, algorithms known as content similarity. Um, essentially what this did is just Look, scan texts and compare the aboutness of a text with another text. Uh, Notavet, which kind of use a graph model and BigQuery data, analytics data, and log likelihood ratio, which just computes how often two pages co-occur in the same journey, and it largely uses Google Analytics. Uh, this is kind of the results. Uh, the top left is how they perform. So going from the left, the red is uh, what we have, then content similarity, Notavec, and LLR um, at the top two. Uh, as you can see, all algorithms uh, decreased interaction with search in the top right. Uh, they decreased user interaction with other navigational elements like breadcrumbs. And uh, there was a marginally increased journey length for users, which seems to suggest they are um, find it useful. Um, 
We chose, though, even though LLR performed the best, we chose Node2Vec. Reason being, Node2Vec is a traditional machine learning algorithm, so you need to train it. It allows us to tweak it a lot better. Um, and we, we, yeah. So how do we productionize it? So this is the most challenging part, really, because nobody in the team had any experience production any sort of machine learning. Um, so this was like completely brand new to everyone in the team. Um, so we had to make a lot of trade-offs and decisions as we went along. Uh, but we had to create, essentially it broke down into two parts. We had to create the data science pipeline and we had to get those links into GovUK. I won't go into too much detail, but I just took a picture of what our data science pipeline is. It's basically get everything from Google Analytics, match it with everything that we have, how we've modeled GovUK, run it through the algorithm and output a CSV or a JSON file. So. Um, quality control was big. Um, so one of the main risks for us is that we don't like predict any bad links, really. Um, so what we did is we outputted a spreadsheet. And every iteration, we had content designers reviewing each uh, iteration of it to check that we weren't um, saying anything that we shouldn't have been. Um, but we've also coded up some time. So here, the link ingestion only runs uh, a couple of days after we've done the manual checks. Uh, rollback options, obviously, uh, if anything was to go wrong, we've just kind of separated it. So we've got curated links at the top, and we've created our own sort of property to have ingest our computer one. That means we can toggle it from this to this if we would suggest something that was bad or controversial or politically not correct. Uh, the last thing is just what we're going to do next. Um, so they went live today, uh, which is really good. It's been six months of work, and it will automatically run after every three weeks. We'll monitor our existing metrics. Uh, we'll examine journey-level data, and we will iterate the pipeline and the algorithm as we go across the coming months. Thank you. Ten seconds to spare. Thank you very much. <laughs> Huge amount of ground covered there. Thank you. And yeah, I think, I think if, you're following us on, if you're following us on Twitter, you can see some of those uh, sort of live links in action. I spent much longer today looking at uh, Vale of Cloyd Denby plums, <laughs> which is a protected food characteristic than I thought yeah. I ever would. Um, <laughs> any questions? Uh, there's lots to think about there. Uh, so we've got one at the back. Uh, I'll ask two then. Um, okay. <laughs> You mentioned uh, controversial or non-PC suggestions that you had to weed out by hand. Uh, have you got a favorite? Uh, and uh, more seriously, um, working with something like node to vec that presumably gives you a measure of similarity between uh, lots of different pages. Have you spotted any like redundancies within the GovUK site of uh, resources which are very, very similar or pages that are very, very similar and don't need to be? I'm kidding. Uh, your first question, I will answer when I'm not on the record. <laughs> uh, with regards to duplicate content, uh, I seem to say, have we noticed any duplicate content as it weeded out? Yeah, I think we at GovUK are like aware that we do have 
duplicate content, and it's a known problem we do have. Um, the Notavec has helped with uh, finding like, what those could be. But the first algorithm we used, which was content similarity, was a Google algorithm that looked at uh, the text in the header, the main body, the title. Um, and that's been a lot more useful for like, comparing content and suggesting how similar it is. It gives it a, like, a score, basically. Take this content, match it against all the estate, and then it gives a score of like, from one to zero of how similar it is. Um, but that's something we're looking to uh, progress further over the coming months. We've got a question over there. Any others in this round? And we've got another one down the front. Let's go for those two next. Hi. Uh, are you worried that your algorithm might become a victim of its own success by becoming self-reinforcing if too many people use related links and that uh, sort of dominates the training data? Um, yeah, and uh, as a as a measure of success, um, not just of the the algorithm, but you know of the of gov.uk itself, um, are you more interested in the quality of the interaction that the customer or user has, or the sort of the volume, the amount of reach that you're getting? Because um, there's there seems we've got a lot of debate about that at our place at the moment, and it's it's a bit difficult to get clarity. <laughs> Thank okay. you. Uh, Yes, self-reinforcing algorithms. Um, I think totally. Yeah, we've, uh, as it went live today, we're, we're not sure how it's going to like pan out. It's going to be we're going to train it on three weeks of big query data each week. Uh, we hope because it's based on what users are actually doing on our site. So we've created uh, a something called a functional network, which is basically. Uh, a network of how people are traversing GovUK um, in kind of real-time way that we hope that because every three weeks users are always coming and doing something different that hopefully it should change the links uh, but there's always a risk of yeah self-reinforcing itself and I guess we'll have to cross that bridge when we get to it uh, Success, quality versus reach. I think GovUK is all about quality. We want to provide users with the content they need uh, rather than trying to reach loads of people. So we are interested in, for example, with, in regards to related links, is our metric success was click-throughs and decrease in sort of things that may suggest that they are lost or trying to find a way to something else. And we're going to look at how we can journey level things. So what does a person do after they click a related link? Because um, that might suggest that the related link's not useful. If two pages down the line they are going to search, we might have made their journey a lot worse. So yeah, I think quality definitely over reach. Excellent. Uh, any more questions? Oh, oh. Got two over there. Fantastic. This may be a bit half-baked, if so, I apologise. Um, Kevin McConway, I'm at the Open University. I'm a statistician, but actually this came to my head because of my own experience as a user of gov.uk. Um, is there anything 
built on your system, which may feed back to the people who design the services that, that, that um, GovUK provides to simplify and avoid redundancy in those services, thus helping the user journey from another point of view. Hi, uh, Rosie from, um, I'm also a civil servant. Uh, I was going to ask whether the, the name of the related link is just the title of the page, in which case, how do you like choose the length of that link? Is there a limit? And in which case, if this becomes like a more widely used system, will this, do you think, lead to a standardization of what you can call pages on gov.uk so that they can also be used as related links? Thank you. And there was one more, was there? Oh. <laughs> uh, so I will answer. So your question was around whether we do we provide feedback to those who create services to help help them better their services? Yeah. Um, as a, we have an entire like team that works on services, and that's the two percent of content, uh, the two percent I mentioned, which is only about two to uh, about around four thousand pages, I think. Um, and that team is like very, very experienced um, in helping uh, people, uh, in helping feedback to where services could be improved. Uh, we also have new things um, called like step by steps, which is teams that are working with uh, service teams in cross departments and helping them uh, structure their service into like steps. So, for example, if you're getting your driving license, it tells you go get your provision or go get your driving. So um, we're wor actively working with service teams to improve the services that uh, citizens use. Does that answer? Uh, the, yeah, so the title, it is the title of the page at the moment. Um, I, there is, we have content design rules and a content design team that have been, um, that do monitor uh, what, publishers right in their titles um, there's no like steadfast rules um, and we trust that publishers are doing things by the service manual and the content design manual. Yeah. So. excellent uh, and that's just a very 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 quick final question Ganesh thank you very much thank you And our final presentation tonight is Michael Birkwistle from the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation. Michael. Right, hello everyone. Um, pages in order. So I was really pleased when uh, Gavin asked me to speak at one of these events, uh, but I was wondering if he's getting a little short on speakers for Databytes simply because, as a fit for an event builders showcasing interesting government data projects, um, we're neither quite government insofar as we're notionally independent, um, and we're not doing interesting things with data. Um, but what we are interested in is what other people are doing with data, um, and ultimately how we maximise the benefits to society of AI and data-driven technology. Um, so even though I think I'm in a room full of data geeks, uh, there's a good chance you haven't heard of us yet, uh, and that's probably because other than our strategy, we haven't published anything, um, although that's going to change very soon. So who are we and uh, what are we trying to do? Well, we've been set up by government um, to advise government on how uh, we make sure we maximise those benefits of, of AI. 
Um, and that means uh, understanding how we develop and deploy uh, that technology ethically and safely. Um, how do we define the bounds of that uh, nebulous phrase, AI and data-driven tech? The short answer is we don't. And the long answer is that if you're working with data uh, very broadly, be that actual machine learning uh, techniques, big data analytics, uh, or any kind of slightly less fancy um, data science, or if you're making policy decisions about how data should be used or collected, we're probably interested in how that, uh, that work might impact on society. Um, and how do we achieve that aim of uh, maximizing the benefits while we try to understand what the risks and opportunities are uh, that are presented by AI and try to understand how prepared our governance systems are to respectively mitigate or take advantage of those risks and opportunities. Um, and uh, by governance, we mean that in the broader sense here. We mean law, we mean regulation, corporate governance, guidance and support and so on. And we have a single uh, formal power at the moment that we'll be making use of, and that is that the government has to respond to our recommendations. Um, we're a very new organisation, um, and as such, we're still figuring things out. We're going to expand our capabilities and tighten our scope as we understand where we can add value. But for the moment, uh, we're developing a few different types of outputs to make this tangible. Um, and what I'm going to talk about today is a single bit of that puzzle, which is the accessibly phrased AI barometer. Um, I'm just going to set that first in uh, some of the other work we're doing, just because it will make a bit more sense. We've got a series of um, short, medium and long-term projects we're working on. Um, at the longer end of things, we've got teams running uh, two major reviews on algorithmic bias um, and on online targeting and profiling. I'm not going to dwell on those now, but feel free to ask me about them in the Q&A. Um, and then we have work that sits under my team in the centre. Um, we've got uh, snapshots, which are intended to be short, responsive, uh, accessible papers on live topics of uh, public concern and interest that are aimed at clarifying facts, issues, themes. Uh, and the first of these will be coming out at the end of this month on deepfakes. We've got others lined up in the near future on smart speakers and voice assistants, AI and insurance, uh, and facial recognition technology. And the idea here is just to set out what the options or next steps might be around the issues identified. Um, we're also running projects uh, with the go by the working title of Zoom Ins, um, any uh, better words on a postcard. Um, uh, and these are really about exploring those options in detail, carrying formal recommendations to governments on where the gaps are in existing regulatory and governance frameworks. Um, and we're doing an initial publication around ethical data sharing models on that. And then finally, we've got um, the AI barometer, where our, whereas our other work um, takes an in-depth look at particular issues or applications. Um, we also need to be able to look across the whole landscape, uh, understand those risks and opportunities presented by the tech, and help policymakers understand what needs most attention. So our problem space uh, for the barometer is broadly, how do you help government, in a very broad sense, understand all the risks, opportunities, and governance gaps around every application of AI and data-driven tech, including which are the most important in every context and sector, now and in the future, in less than a year. And that's a bit of an exaggeration. That is the problem we eventually want to have an answer to uh, with more time and resource. But uh, we will be publishing uh, a first output uh, towards the end of this year that begins to answer some of these questions in some contexts. Um, how are we hoping to do that? Well, uh, what I'm going to describe is very much a work in progress, and we expect it to look very different across subsequent iterations. So with that proviso, um, the first thing we're doing is we're cutting it down to five sectors um, to make the task reasonable. 
Um, secondly, we're adopting something of a mixed methodology. We're happy to be corrected on this, but um, we haven't found there to be an established methodology for articulating, measuring and prioritising all of the ethical risks that this sort of technology presents, uh, much less alongside all of the sort of oppor opportunity costs of not being ready to take advantage of the potential benefits. Um, there are approaches from corporate risk, from uh, civil contingencies, from general impact assessment tools, uh, and so on that have useful elements, um, but any one of those approaches um, for looking at the issue, all of these issues, isn't quite right. And the main reason for that is because the uh, range of risks and opportunities are so broad. Um, this is a non-exhaustive list of some of the common themes we're seeing. Um, we're trying to map out everything from the impact on an individual of uh, an algorithmic decision-making process to physical harms to public confidence in institutions, uh, under and over the confidence in technology, market effects, individual rights, and so on and so on. And um, there are a huge amount of lenses that you can look at this through, and it's not really easy to bring a sort of accept accessible conceptual clarity um, to the sort of many levels and um, sort of types of abstractions that um, you, you can make around these potential sort of harms and opportunities. Um, but we have to start somewhere. Um, so what we're trying to do is we're trying to build a typology and a hierarchy of those uh, risks and opportunities. Um, and I should stress that we're not in any way trying to uh, build some kind of objective measure or formal taxonomy around these issues, but we are trying to add some structure um, so that we can help build a sort of common picture and language around these issues as we go forward. Um, and we're trying to do so not only around that sort of um, high conceptual level on the previous slide, but also expressed through risk statements of how these manifest in context, um, because it's impossible to judge the need of, of how urgently we need to deal with some of these without really looking at context. So the sort of typical example is the need to be able to explain a machine's decisions. In cancer diagnosis might be quite low if you know that the machine is very accurate, but um, that may well not be true if it's making decisions about people's creditworthiness, no matter how accurate you think it is. So these are just some sort of examples um, that, uh, that, that I've picked out. This is roughly where we're up to. Um, we're putting together hundreds of these uh, across uh, the sort of five sectors that we've picked out. The next uh, stage is building sort of expert sector panels to add to these, to refine them, um, prioritise them and really get into the detail of them. Um, we want to build on the sort of the expertise that already exists and help translate that to government and make sure that we are talking to and convening sort of lots of different communities so that we don't miss anything. So that's a bit of a whistle-stop tour. Um, Hopefully some of that's been interesting to some of you. We're still very much learning and about the best way of doing this. We're particularly interested in talking to you if um, you're doing interesting things around AI, data, and, and the impacts of that. Um, if you've got any views on how you do this, on methodology, um, or if you're a policymaker and have thoughts on what it's going to be useful for you to hear from us. Four seconds. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much. <laughs> A nice small remit you've got yourself there. Um, who would like to ask questions of Michael? We've got a question down the front. Uh, we've got a question back there as well. Let's start with those two. So one here and one there. Hi, Michael. One of the issues we're facing with, um, in terms of uh, the work we're doing in Newham, is about I know children, adults. Uh, and using AI um, in sort of the public health space as well. And I just wondered what the sectors were and whether it was too late to make a plea for local government. And 
um, Eve Sampson. I run the Joint Committee on Human Rights in Parliament, and this is something which is shooting up the policy agenda. My committee is just doing an inquiry into privacy and the digital revolution. So how are you going to make sure that your work's fleet-footed enough to influence thinking which is happening now? Thank you. Right, um, thank you for those. Um, so, uh, the barometer's five sectors don't include local government, but our major review on um, a bias does. So, um, what, and in fact, they are taking a sectoral approach, and one of the sectors that they're very interested in is the use of um, sort of predictive analytics in um, things like social care interventions and so on. So, if you like, I'm very happy to put you in touch with those colleagues, um, and that's going to happen sort of later this year. Um, how do we be fleet-footed enough? Um, that is something we're, we're struggling with. It's, it's one of the reasons that we um, have uh, created these sort of quicker formats, the, the sort of the snapshots I mentioned, a one-month sort of papers. We spend that, we get it out, um, we sort of put our mark down about it. Um, I suppose a, um, a constant tension here is the need to be thorough. And, and evidenced and the need to be able to move with the debate. What the sort of the speed of the debate we're seeing around facial recognition technology, um, uh, around um, uh, lo lots of different aspects of, of, of this tech is, is very fast and it will move on without us if we're not careful. So it's something we're very alive to. Um, uh, I suppose part of what we're doing this first year is uh, understanding what we think about the landscape in general, understanding what um, principles we want to adopt once we're in that position and once we have a sort of ground level of understanding of, um, of all of these sorts of issues, um, we'll be able to be a lot quicker and more responsive. Thank you. Next set of questions to Michael. It's got one there, got another one down here, and was that a hand I saw at the top? Yeah. In fact, I think we, we may have got four. Maybe, maybe we take all four. What you're doing is very interesting, um, but as you've said, it's very complicated and it's a very wide landscape. And I'd just like to ask, uh, Kevin McConway again, I'd just like to ask about two different aspects of that. One is you mentioned the snapshots of um, items of public interest and concern, uh, and obviously public interest and concern comes into a lot of what you do. Uh, and what methods do you actually use for determining what the public are interested in and concerned about and what efforts are you making to, to ensure that this isn't, let's say, too metropolitan? <coughs> I'll stop there. Uh, yes, Hartley Miller again. Uh, the question of um, what is important and what, is the what are the implications of the technologies doesn't just affect the individuals, it also affects the system in which society operates. So the question to you really is, to what extent are you going to uh, comment on things like the impact of cryptocurrencies on the financial system and other wider, um, wider questions? Thank you. If we take the question from the back or we pass the mic forward. Um, as a citizen and watcher of AI, I wonder what your applica what applications of AI you're most excited by and which ones you're most scared by. Okay, and we'll take a fourth as well. Sorry. Yeah, I think it sort of slightly follows on from one of the earlier questions, but um, in terms of the fact that security is one of the things you're looking at, um, and that um, a lot of the innovations that we're seeing are disruptive 
Um, you might say, you know, and the people using phrases like hacking society, and we've seen some of the effects of, um, I don't know, things like the emergence of like the Uber network, and um, on the other side of things, sort of hacking um, in social sense to influence elections and that kind of, of thing. Uh, I just wondered how you, or if there is a way of kind of drawing the line between the things that are inevitably going to change and we should be ready to accept those kind of changes because that's the, the flow of things, or um, where, where you would sort of be advising, actually, we need to put a stop to this because I can see this growing like topsy or what have you. Thank you. Okay. Um, big range of questions, so I'll try and deal with them quickly. Um, how do we pick our issues? Um, at the moment, it's a spreadsheet, and it's an issues tracker of, uh, of um, sort of everything that we come up, um, come across in our reading um, that, is, uh, that seems concerning, and that really is a very, very broad range of issues. Um, ultimately, what we're trying to do with the barometer is give that sense check of um, where you know that all that heat map of like what are the things that we really need to be picking out so um, we're very alive to the fact that you're only going to get sort of um, people's perceptions through asking them what they're worried about and um, what we're trying to build into the barometer and our process is not just picking up on those things and that's why we're trying to talk to such a wide range of people we don't just want um, you know uh, the the sort of the, the things that we come out to be with to be responses to um, you know very very hot topics in the media like lethal autonomous weapons and so on. We want it to be a very broad range of things that affect people's lives, whether that's you know credit scores or whether it's um, impact on agriculture and so on. It, you know we're trying to be broad with that. I'm going to have to be quicker on these answers. Um, to what extent are we looking at systemic issues? Uh, and other technologies. We're not necessarily prioritizing technologies like blockchain at the moment um, because there is so much just around machine learning that we think we need to deal with first. Um, uh, that said, uh, the sort of the risk statements that I was highlighting earlier, um, some of those are about you know, broader things like um, confidence in institutions um, and we need that to be on our radar. We need to be looking not just at the sort of um, sort of direct impact, but those further down the line and those larger ones. Um, so that's uh, something very much on our mind. Um, uh, question on um, to what extent are we going to comment on sort of um, disruptive technology? To some extent, we don't really have a mandate to tell people what's ethical and what's not. What we have is a mandate to advise government as a sort of you know system for democratically deciding what to do about things, where the issues are. So that's fundamentally where our, our starting point. Um, when we have more time to dive into issues around the major reviews and so on, we may get more sort of specific about those larger um, sort of disruptive or market effects and so on. Um, but we need to be a bit careful about what we've been set up to do and why we're there. Um, finally, applications most scary and excited. Uh, I think as a general observation, it's usually not the things that um, people worry about in the press that are the things that are sort of the most worrying. I think some of the, you know, um, it's, it's often the bits of technology that you don't realise are there and you don't realise are impacting um, on the decisions that are made about you that I think are the ones that um, are 
an area of concern for at least me. Um, I think I'm out of time, but thank you very much. And please do come talk to me if any of this is interesting to you. Thank you, Michael. Um, well, I'd normally say just come and join us for drinks and nibbles afterwards, but there are so many questions that the uh, speakers tonight have offered to answer over drinks and nibbles that you should definitely come along uh, and join us out on the landing. Um, all that remains for me to say is thank you all for coming. Thank you for some brilliant questions from the audience. And a huge thank you and a huge round of applause, uh, round of applause for our excellent speakers tonight. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>